this week on the Backtable Podcast. And that is honestly, for me personally, the biggest reason to remain independent. Yes, physicians are not good business people, but we are the clinicians. We are passionate about our patients. We're in this for our patients. And by becoming and driving it towards a very strict business model, I do think you significantly decrease patient care, the quality, the hands-on service, the personal care. I've seen many articles, not specific radiology, but about ER, private equity-owned companies, understaffing ERs with all APPs and maybe one doctor managing you know, many, many APPs. I have mm-hmm. seen that happening in radiology. One IR physician has to manage PAs at multiple sites. Uh, there is no radiologist on site. So to me, that is a significant decline in the level of care that we are providing our patients. And as someone that will need care in the future, I am very worried about that. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. This is Michael Barraza, your co-host today, joined by my friend, Ali Behetti. Hey, Ali. Hey there, Mike. So we're doing a, another episode in a series that we've done on the business of radiology, really focusing on private equity. Ali and I interviewed Ben White to discuss private equity in radiology a couple months ago, and then she recently interviewed Dr. Tarang Patel from Dr. Money Matters to talk about physician finances and private equity as well. It was a really good episode. I encourage everybody to give it a listen. We're covering a similar topic today, but looking at you know a different perspective at private equity in radiology. And we're joined by some members of Collaborative Imaging, which have developed an alliance to help practices remain independent, among other things. And I'm joined today by Dr. Ted Wynn, and Dhruv Chopra. Ted is the chief clinical officer at Collaborative Imaging, and he's president of Texas Radiology Associates. And Dhruv is the CEO of Collaborative Imaging. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So I wanted to start, uh, you know, we're going to get into the details of, of Collaborative Imaging in a bit, but I wanted to start by talking about some of the basics of private equity and radiology. We've done that on a couple other episodes, but I wanted to do it again. And Private equity in in radiology is pretty rampant in Texas. It's been a hot market for P acquisitions of both small and large practices really for a while now, but you know, it's also home to some of the largest independent practices in the United States. So I wanted to start with you, Ted, and and really ask how did your practice navigate these discussions and and what led you guys uh, ultimately to remain independent? Yes, as a fast growing group, so a little bit of background, I was number six to join. TRA 20 years ago, and we've grown during that time to 150 physicians. So we're fortunate we are in a very great economic area, great hospital, great patients. 
But despite that growth, we obviously could see what was happening throughout the country in other cities in Houston and could feel the pressures from private equity. And literally, they are co-calling our hospitals constantly or our hospital system CEOs trying to get their foot in the door, trying to take away contracts, not just buying groups, but literally trying to take over contracts. And so we felt threatened like everyone, and we felt as large as we are, we needed to do more to protect ourselves or, and, or we needed to investigate private equity. Maybe this is a right model for the practice. And so we spent about, honestly, eight years doing our due diligence. We met with every private equity group in the country. I even went on what I literally call a PE speed dating, where I spent a whole day in Charlotte and 25 PE companies pitched to us. 25? I didn't even know there were that wow. many. And as you can imagine, we're a desirable practice, right? We're in right. a large practice, a metropolitan area. We're in mm -hmm. every hospital system. We're not just in one hospital system. We have very good contracts and very strong growth. So they constantly bombard us with pitches. And so we spent a lot of time. But as you know, the, the model is the same. The numbers vary slightly. And after a lot of soul searching, a lot of meetings, we decided, and I'm very proud of our older partners, that yes, for, and I'm one of the older partners, this would be a very easy transaction, take a lot of money, work a few years, buy a sailboat, and, and go off into the sunset. But what does that do to all the younger partners? Or more importantly, what does that do to all the workups who are not yet partner? What does that do to all of our new hires? It just was not fair to them. And we were very proud of what we've grown. And honestly, some of our hospital partners, some of the largest in the world, said to us, don't you dare sell out and no longer be a lifelong partner of ours. And so we decided, you know, this, this, we can't do this. This is not the model for TRA. But it's one thing to just say, oh, we're going to remain independent. How do you flourish in this climate? How do you continue to do very well and provide the best care possible with all these threats out there? And that's how we then pivoted into CI. Now, it was, it was not an immediate pivot. I took some major wrong turns. I'm a former biomedical engineer and software engineer. And so I wanted to develop technologies to provide value, better value to patients to our hospital partners, to our imaging center partners, to our referring doctors, because I felt that was the way to combat private equity. But it was not so simple a task. And Dhruv is someone I've known for almost 15 years now. He's very, even though he's an MBA business type, which I respect, but, but he's actually very technologically and medically savvy. And so we traveled a lot together and, and we chatted a lot and we learned from each other. And that's how we decided, okay, we're going, we are going to remain independent, but the way to flourish and succeed is we need technology. We need our own people to develop better value, better products for our patients. And that's how we can flourish. And Mike, just to piggyback a little bit on what uh, Dr. Wen just said. So first thing is with private equity coming in, it's a great deal for the senior partners who are ready to retire, ready to call it quits because they, you know, get a nice bolus of cash. The younger partners are the ones who end up carrying the bag, so to speak. And what ends up happening is they're the ones paying for the senior partners getting paid out, right? Someone has to pay that money back. Oh yeah, I've been there. And then they have these draconian non-competes that come into play as well. So it's not only that you're gonna pay it back for five years, or what have you. After that, if you leave, 
you essentially cannot practice anywhere else. And again, physicians are scientists by nature. They're very, very smart people. They're not necessarily business people. And so, you know, they are very trusting on, in certain regards when it comes to what people say. But unfortunately, private equity is, while of course, trustable and reliable, but not everything is spelled out for the physicians on that side of the equation. Certainly not. You know, I didn't give my background, but the practice had joined uh, immediately. Actually, I joined it before I started fellowship. The group it was a large practice, probably 50 doctors or so. They sold like three months before I started my job. And, you know, I decided to ride it out. I, you know, I'd already, I owned a house in the this, this city where I was moving and they had a lot of issues with um, instability in the in the ensuing years. And so I'm, I'm in a different practice now. I'm in a smaller independent practice in Louisiana. So I, I certainly love to hear your story of, of remaining independent. One thing I wanted to do, and, and you've touched on this a bit, but talk about some of the reasons that these practices end up selling, you know, that the obvious one is, of course, the payout. You know, you look at some practices like, you know, as an example, ARA, a large successful practice, that, that sold, I, it, it's hard for me to, to find any reasons besides the, the payout to explain why they would have sold. But they're, you know, for smaller and medium-sized practices, can you kind of explain some of the reasons why these groups feel pressured to join? You know, I'd, I'd actually, I'd heard rumors of what you talked about, Ted, about the companies calling these, these hospitals about the practices, but I'd, I'd, never, I'd never actually heard real examples before. So you are absolutely correct, Michael. So I think as a large group, you have the resources, you can more successfully flourish and remain independent. If you're a medium or small group, it's very challenging because the technology, while in radiology is very good, they keep raising the cost literally every single year. The payments keep decreasing, billing costs keep increasing, support staff, billing costs, everything keeps increasing and you get much more challenging times trying to recruit because again, private equity is now literally dangling probably 30% more money than private practice can offer new hires. Oh, but you get to work from home. Well, how do you compete with that? We have to staff the hospitals 24 seven. We have to staff our imaging centers. So for a small independent group, and that's again, why I think CI was important because it offers tools so you can try to remain independent if that's what your desire. But absolutely, I will tell you El Paso, tenant El Paso is an example. Private equity came in, went to the C-suite. They took the whole contract. They didn't pay out the radiologist. They told the radiologist, oh, we're your new boss. Here's your new contract. Accept it or have a good day. Now, that was three years ago. Now, Tenet has been very unhappy with the transition. And they've, they're reaching out to groups like ours now to see if we can help them. It's a recurring theme, though, is that once the PE practices take over, they work for like a couple years. But once the hospitals realize they can't provide the same on-site services, especially for us, like IRs, um, then they reach back out to the local practices. Exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, here's the real dynamics of it, right? You have expenses going up. You have reimbursement going down. You have physicians, you know, being asked to do more work, read quicker, read more studies. Um, it's just not sustainable. So they think, oh, private equity is going to come in. Private equity is going to take on all this headache. But what ends up happening is private equity is going to raise the RVUs, the minimum RVUs that you're doing. They're going to penalize you if you don't meet those numbers. And the end result is you have demotivated physicians 
And that results in all the different issues that you guys are alluding to right now. So the goal, and as Dr. Wen was saying, you know, you have to improve the technology that's out there. You have to improve the workflow solutions. But smaller practices and even larger practices to that extent don't have a kitty of money sitting over there that they're putting aside to say, let's invest back in the group. Sure. At the end of the year, there's zero dollars in their bank account because they've distributed it out to all their partners, which is rightfully so. The partners have earned that money. So now you're not investing in the group. So your group's falling further behind. And so you say, well, we need a new PACs. We need to spend $2 million. We don't have that money. Okay, let's bring on private equity. They'll they'll take on that bill for us. But there's so much more that comes alongside um, that equation. So, Well, Ali, to your point, it's not. I know even of physicians who didn't just sell out and then work a few years, retire and left what's, you know, the disaster to their young partners. They literally took the money, move out of state, outside of non-compete to work out the non-compete, to wait for the non-compete. Then they plan to come back to original city mm-hmm. and set up practice again. I mean, so. Yeah, but now the non-competes, Dr. Wen, non-competes are even more draconian now. I agree. Where it's basically anywhere the private equity company has reached or has, you know, touched, or is there a prospect for them that you can't go over there? Right. So basically now what you're saying is, well, fine, then you're going to leave radiology, the re- leave the radiology practice until you, your non-compete wears down. And um, it's pretty crazy. And, and that's why you're seeing now what's happening is more and more physicians are setting up shop at their homes and reading through teleradiology for remote places because that's all they can do, you know, from that standpoint, because their non-competes are barring them and physicians are very adverse to lawsuits and litigation, you know, so private equity takes advantage of that. The physicians don't have the money to take on the private equity guys when it comes down to litigation and things like that. So they're bound by their non-competes. Do you see any upsides for a group to join a private equity? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the main thing that private equity brings in is money, is strategic relationships, ability for the group to grow, which, you know, if it, everything works out and if everything's aligned, it makes sense. But what ends up happening with private equity is it seldom is aligned. Um, you're taking away, you're reducing the physician's pay, but you're benefiting more um, in that regard. Um, you're making the physicians provide less stellar service to the hospitals because you're running it like a business and you're saying, wait a second, we're not going to staff it with these many physicians on site because we need to make money for the practice. Well, what ends up happening is now you're tarnishing the relationships with the hospitals which is exactly what's happening, right? Dr. Wen alluded to El Paso. They come in, they say, you know what? We're going to put all the staff, we're going to give you every subspecialty that you need. We're going to do this. And then six months later, when you're fully in from the hospital perspective, then they start winding it down and saying, well, you don't need six people. You're only going to get three and we're going to cut back. I was recently in uh, Tennessee and I was being told by hospital administrators over there that their turnaround times are three days, three days to turn around exams that they're using they're using ADOC to determine what exams to read because based on what findings come back, they're reading those studies, but everything else is taking three days to read because the physicians are just not there. They're leaving the groups in um, droves and it's a crazy reality that we're living in. It seems like a lot of them, the private equity companies will market for you know the nebulous additional things you get from being part of a large company, uh, you know, improved marketing, things like that. And I, I've in my biased and limited experience, it's like where they deliver to. And so, you know, arguments are made like, oh, you know, you're going to be part of this big company. You're going to get all these added benefits. And I just didn't see any come to fruition. 
it's never worked. It's never worked, Mike, right? Yeah. You look at, go back to radiologics in the 90s, right? It didn't work. Go back to the Mednaxes, go back to the Envisions, go back to radiology partner. The model doesn't work. You know, I just, and it's going to, you know, what's going to end up happening is again, you're going to see private equity and radiology go down. And 10 years later, again, it will come back up when there's again, a next set of partners that are ready to retire. Why should we care about helping practices stay independent? You know, if they want to sell out and tank the futures of their practices, how is that going to affect my local market or the, you know, the specialty at large? Yes. And, and that is honestly, for me personally, the biggest reason to remain independent because Yes, physicians are not good business people, but we are very, we are, we are the clinicians. We are passionate about our patients. We're in this for our patients. And by becoming and driving it towards a very strict business model, I do think you significantly decrease patient care, the quality, the hands-on service, the personal care. I've seen many articles, not specifically radiology, but about ER, private equity-owned companies, understaffing ERs with all APPs and maybe one doctor managing, you know, many, many APPs. I have mm -hmm. seen that happening in radiology. One IR physician has to manage PAs at multiple sites. Uh, there is no radiologist on site. So to me, that is a significant decline in the level of care that we are providing our patients. And as someone that will need care in the future, I am very worried about that. Yeah, and I think the other side, just to piggyback on that as well, is in regards to, you know, just radiologists' job satisfaction. You look at the burnout rate, you look at the satisfaction rates, they've just been plummeting. You know, it's been going down more and more since private equities got involved. They don't enjoy the practice of radiology anymore. When you're running it like a business and you're just trying to, you know, they like talking to referring physicians in many cases. They want to pick up the phone, spend three minutes talking to the referring physicians. In the models that are out there, that's going to cost you your RVUs, right? You're not going to get, you're not going to make your quota for your RVUs. You're going to get dinged or you're not going to get your bonuses. So now you're asking radiologists to say, well, don't talk to that referring physician. Don't spend the time on doing what you would have normally done and just keep reading, you know, on that side of the equation, which is, again, it creates a problem for patient care and overall radiologist satisfaction. So, so Tell us this then, you know, with this environment, you know, I think you've given us good background on this. How did collaborative imaging arise from this? You know, 2018, this is right in the middle of it. Right. So as I said, we voted as a practice to remain independent. And then what I tried to do is we had some ideas about how to provide value, how to build technology. I tried to do so hiring an outsource software company, abysmal failure, wasted a lot of money. It doesn't work. So sat down with Drew, complaining to him about all the issues. And then we started realizing, you know, we have to have our own company. We have to have our own people that work just for radiologists, not for multiple companies. And Drew has a lot of experience with radiology companies before this, right? Yeah. So it was a very, it was a very easy conversation, you know, that we had as to what Dr. Wen was trying to do for his practice. And it, you know, it wasn't something that I had to learn from the ground up or anything like that. It was like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, you have 18 different pack systems. Why do you have 18 different PCs around your desk logging into each pack separately? Why don't you have a universal work list? Why don't we build that? Each hospital system's different. Some provide you with HL7 feeds. Some provide you, you know, with batch data. And all these other companies that are out there, all these vendors require it to be Perfect. You know, you have to have everything coming to you from the hospital in order to use their products. And Dr. Wen's group 
being in 80, 90 different hospitals. You know, they have some rural hospitals, they have some very progressive hospitals. They get data different ways. And so these guys were not able, the vendors that were out there are not able to provide a solution that works for all of them. They're like, okay, well, we'll do nine. We'll put nine on one solution, but the other nine, you're going to have nine different things. It doesn't help. So that's when we went down the path of just saying, you know what, let's create our own universal work list. Let's create our own routing rules. Let's create our own RCM side of the equation. And the goal was with every one of these things that we did was to reduce their cost and improve their productivity or improve the RCM side of the equation, bring in more money at a lower cost. And we were able to do that time and time again while making sure, you know, that the organization itself was very profitable from that standpoint. So, but I mean, it's, been, it's the alignment between the radiologists and the technology team that's so critical and that constant feedback. We've created our own voice recognition technology, our own speech-to-text solution, right? Everybody uses Nuance, Dragon, Emoto, you know, these other applications out there. Well, none of them have any RCM integration to it. So how do physicians know what they're supposed to dictate and if their report is adequate or if it's deficient? You know, you're waiting for your billing company after the fact to send back some sort of notification to you in a disparate system that you're going to go have to log in on and do an addendum on. Hopefully that addendum goes back to your billing company. If it doesn't, you know, you just wasted your time. You're disrupting your workflow. We decided we're just going to develop our own. Technologies have emerged so much now that you can do these things. So, you know, we developed our own universal work list. We developed our own RCM solutions. We developed our own um, voice recognition. We developed our own risk, our own VNA. And we did all of this in less than five years. And, you know, this, the kicker is we're doing is all this at about 40% of the cost that all the others charge. And that's the beauty of it. So practices now have this bolus of money. If you look at Texas Radiology, after we brought in their RCM, they started making a lot more money on the RCM. I think their revenues went up by 20 to 30%, but their costs were down by like 40 to 50%. So now all of a sudden, a physician practice has bolus of money sitting over there that they can invest in other things for their practice. You're not taking away money from the physicians to invest in something. You're actually giving them more money. The same thing's true with the universal work list and our workflow solutions, which made them 40% more productive. All of a sudden, you need you can grow your practice now without hiring more people because you have that capacity to expand. These are the things that private equity should be focusing on and helping the physician groups and benefiting from that, not sucking the blood out of the physicians and the practice, you know, so they make money on that cost. So that's, and I, Dr. Wen, I have to give you major credit for, you know, having that vision, but that's exactly what we're trying to do and try to create. Well, let me add, so I mentioned I'm a Bible engineer. So to me, I actually, I truly love, I'm passionate about radiology, taking care of patients, but the processes bug the heck out of me, it, the inefficiencies, the pitfalls, the Swiss cheese hole that we encounter every single day. I'm sure like you, I wake up three in the morning so in, in, a, in a sweat because did I, did I miss that, mention that nodule because I got interrupted five times? Did I miss that breast mass? So, so a lot of this is driven by personal experience. So this is a story, and I'm sorry, Drew's heard this before, but this was so important to me. I met a man who was very upset. He came and told me in our business office, and I'm rarely there, but I happen to be there, that we did a CTA on his wife a year ago. And they very clearly remember being told by ER doctor very quickly. They were amazed how quickly the, the exam got read because we do read our exams very quickly. He had the full exam. Miss Jones, of course, I've changed the name. No pulmonary embolus, you can go on home. Well, impression number two was very concerning breast mass. They do not recall being told that. I don't know if they were told that and just in the 
you know, frustration of the moment or the hairiness of the moment forgot that. But the hospital even faxed the report to the patient's gynecologist. She had no appointment. So they go in a year later, they pull the report, and they are horrified to find there's a breast mass that we picked up a year ago that has been missed for a year. So here we're thinking, oh, we do a great job. No, we failed this patient. So this is one of our projects. I want to find ways that we can securely notify our doctors to these, what they call now actionable findings. And there are you know, different vendors. And, and that's another goal for CI. There are very good products out there, believe me, but they all cost a lot of money and they don't all do everything that we think would be helpful to us. And so I want tools that we had this in place that ER doctor would have been immediately securely notified as well as the gynecologist. Ms. Jones does not have a PE, but by there's a breast mask. Can we please work her up on the spot? Can you imagine how a patient would feel to get that kind of a report instead of, oh, a week later, two weeks later, you know, oh, they found something, we're going to work you up. But to a hospital, that is a better care, absolutely. But it's also leakage. If you tell a patient they have something, they will want to work it up on the spot, and they are grateful to you for doing that. At an ACR meeting I was at, one hospital out east was going to hire 13 nurse navigators to read radiology reports looking for actionable findings. Well, we can just provide them a list. We can provide nurse navigators. Here's a list every day. These are the cases. Or we can literally notify the patient and or the doctor in the moment. Can we please work up this patient? That way you prevent patients' loss to follow-up. You provide better care. I mean, think of the, to me, just the possibility of better care is overwhelming if we can do this and do it well. But this is also how, as you can imagine, I'm sure for your practices, getting interfaces to hospital systems, particularly in this environment of ransomware, is very challenging. And they've been very resistant for decades. Now we can come to them and say, look, this is why we want these interfaces. It's not because I want to be on the beach reading for you. It's because I want to provide this level of care, this value add to your patients, but we need these interfaces. And so what CI is building, and Drew just lightly hinted on it, it's not a common universal workplace product. It's not a common RCM. Everything is AI driven. Everything is provide better clinical history. We've joked like, for example, there, there's a bot that pulls the EMR data. They call it TED bot. So, so little TED bots running around pulling the appropriate clinical indications because you know what percentage of clinical indications we get, right? From That's adequate for our reports. So we want to provide that data. Then that can provide, when you click sign report, it's a clean claim. Because again, the goal is, I don't mind working hard. I love working hard, but I want to work efficiently. And I just want to get paid for what we do appropriately. So if we can have processes to provide a clean claim, that's a game changer. That will really improve what we can do, provide better value to the physicians, to the patients, and provide better appropriate composition to us so then we can invest back into our practice for our patients. Yeah, and I think, Dr. Wen, you said a lot over there, so I'm just going to quickly just run through a couple of things. So in everything that we're using AI for, right, it's to improve the efficiency, it's to improve the workflow. So for example, no two referring physicians 
want the same kind of report. Some like structured reports, some like lengthy reports, some like short reports. Some want the impression to be on top, some want the impression to be on the bottom. You know, everybody has their nuances and, and it's becoming more and more nuanced as to what each physician wants. So for example, we're using AI to identify what the referring physician wants based on them being able to rate the reports. When have you heard of a referring physician being able to rate a radiology report like Yelp? They aren't able to. There's no technology out there that allows them to do that, right? Well, don't you want to know when a referring physician doesn't like your report so you can take action on it? Isn't that the world we should be living in? Shouldn't we notify the patients in real time when we find something you know, abnormal with them? But now we get our hand slap because we've developed the technology to do that. But we get, to get a hand slap from the referring physicians that say, no, 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 no. Why are you telling the patient that they have an abnormal finding? I haven't even had a chance to look at the report. So delay it by seven days. Well, you have the patient's access rights, right? Patients are entitled to see their data. So, you know, that's where we're juggling it with the technologies emerged so fast that we're able to notify the patients, like Dr. Wen saying, of their findings. So things like that, you know, on the RCM side, again, you know, we monitor carriers by design are going to try and deny your claim. They're going to find every reason in the book to deny your claim. Well, let's catch them at their own game. Let's see what they're denying, why they're denying it, and stop those denials from happening on the front end, as opposed to having to work that on the back end, which costs a lot more money. You know, we're playing into the carrier's hands. So that's how we're using AI. We are doing all of the interpretation of images. Of course, that's easy for us to do. We can do that. There are just enough companies doing that right now. And I don't think it's going to add any value if we jump in that direction, but we're partnering with them and using their data from that standpoint to help the radiologists. So I got a couple of questions for you real quick, just to redirect. What do you guys see as the biggest inefficiencies for a lot of the medium and large size practices that can be improved upon? Maybe that things that you've found solutions for or things that you're still looking for solutions? Yeah, I think the first thing is definitely RCM, right? Sure. And that's mostly on the hospital side, right? Hospital and imaging center side, right? So for example, if you're not collecting the right deductible when the patient comes in, or you're not setting up the right payment plan, you're going to be spending a lot more money going after the patient down the road, right? If you're not getting the patient pre-registered with electronic forms and all the electronic documentation that you can, um, you're going to be spending a lot more money when they come in and you're going to, you know, it's very funny. We have a group that we've partnered with in California that's building an imaging center right now. And they invited us to do a site visit. And I could not believe they had this huge waiting room in the front. It looked like a bus stop. And I'm like, why do you have such a big waiting room? And they're like, well, we use the same architect that designed all of these other imaging centers. And he said, you need a big waiting room. And I'm like, no, you don't. Get everything done before the patient comes in or facilitate that so that you have efficiencies and you don't have to have as many people working on it. And you don't have to have the patient sit there and wait. You know, in our risk, for example, we notify patients if exams are running longer so they don't have to come in. So if your exam was starting at 8 a.m., but the previous exam is finishing at 8.06, we notify the patient that you're running six minutes behind so you can come in six minutes later, right? But RCM is definitely one area, the workflow side with interfaces. When you have these disparate systems, there's so much information that's being lost. Hospitals sending you bad information, like Dr. Wen was saying, clinical indications, right? If you don't have the right clinical indications and it's a normal study, you know, that exam is probably sure. not going to get paid. So creating a unified work list and creating things like that across multiple health systems. But if you're not involved in a market and there's multiple health systems involved, all of which use different radiology groups, how do you get them to talk each other or even interact in a meaningful manner such that you can create something like that. Absolutely. So now what's happening is so that I think the two things, and I think Dr. Wen, you alluded to one of them, having the trust of the hospital systems to provide you access to that data is key, right? And what that basically means is smaller practices cannot do this. They're not SOC certified. They're not high trust certified. 
right? But there's nobody out there that's taking on this battle for the smaller practices. So we're doing that for the smaller practices. Our smallest practice is a one-man group. Our largest practice is a 200-man group, right? So we're treating each one the same and we're saying, hospitals, trust us with your data. We're SOX2 certified. You know, here's our high trust documentation. Here's everything that we have. Share the data with us. This is how we're going to use it. And all of a sudden, we're passing that information on to the radiologist as opposed to, you know, the same thing's true with prior exams, right? You need a prior exam for a patient who has a mammo. And if you don't have that, what do you do? Then you create these workflows around it and say, well, get the patient scanned and now start chasing down the priors and I'm not going to read the study till I get the prior. Well, why don't we stop that from happening and let's make sure we get all of that done the right way on the front end. And I can commit to you, as, different, as strange as it sounds, it's very doable, it's very attainable and we're doing this day in and day out because it helps everybody in that process. It helps the hospitals as well because we're not having to bother the hospital techs to send these priors over. Um, we're building those solutions that we can actually pull the stuff that we need I guess like how do you get how do you get buy-in from the hospitals though when it's going to take resources on their end to do something that doesn't directly benefit them? You're and you're absolutely right as to why would the hospitals do this, right? And again, if we show them how it benefits them, right? So notifying the patients, notifying the physicians, not relying on exams dropping off the list, not having a director of radiology looking at the report list every day and saying, "Hey, these studies haven't been read. Let me get involved." If we can do all that for them, it builds that buy-in. Now, sometimes you have to pay for the interface cost, right? You might have to pay $15,000 for the bi-directional HL7 interfaces. It's a small price to pay for the benefit that you're going to get. There's still some hospitals, it surprises me, there's still some hospitals that are faxing over reports to their billing companies. Well, that fax costs money. It doesn't go through. Now, if the billing company doesn't get it and they're going to call and they're going to say, send me this thing, someone has to do that. So by eliminating all that work and showing them that we're working together and we're part of the same ecosystem, it really helps. But Dr. Wen, I'll defer to you as well. If you know, You've been very involved with your hospitals and the value that we're driving them with what we're doing. Well, Ali, I'll address you. Also, I had hinted at what about multiple groups, you know, staffing different hospital systems. So that's also yeah. a goal for us is we want to help groups succeed. And so, so we have worked with other groups at their request. Um, we provided off-hours coverage, we provide specialty coverage. We try to help each other succeed because uh, there, there's you know, new, for example, NICU certifications that require PD rats. Well, there are very few PD rats around. We can help provide some of that. We tell the hospitals, we're here to help you improve care for your patients, but we need these interfaces. We will work with your groups. We're not here to take over anyone. We're just trying to improve everyone's care. And they see it, right? They, they actually see it. And we give them the dashboards, the metrics and everything else to show them that we're lowering the length of patient stays because those follow-ups are happening, that we're improving negative outcomes from happening because we're making sure abnormal results are being relayed. Incidental okay. findings are being followed up on. For example, if a radiologist recommends a follow-up study be performed, we're notifying the scheduling team that, hey, the radiologist recommended this. And this is all done electronically. Right. So they're seeing the benefit of that. And once they start using it, they're just like, oh, yeah, we want this. This is what we want. This is what. And why can't other groups do that? And I think you're going to see that that's going to be the standard of care now that the hospitals are going to demand that off the radiology groups that, you know, they pass this information on. And that's just the reality. And you have to do that while combating the rising expenses, you know, on delivering care and the lower reimbursement. How many groups are you guys currently working with? So we represent about 900 physicians. And it's about 30 groups, 30 practices around the nation. 
And we don't have a sales team. The growth has just come from word of mouth, from physicians, hospitals, imaging centers. Do you guys have any IR-specific products or things related to IR inefficiencies? Uh, one thing that comes to mind for me is how we bill our ENM. It's been kind of a hot topic. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we have IR is one of the areas in more recent years, there's been a lot more bundling that's done in IR. So it's very important you get that information correct from the get-go. And IR notes is another example that, you know, seldom is that dictated into PowerScribe, right? The IR notes are typically dictated into hospital systems, into the, you know, into the epics as, you know, consults or summaries or what have you. So they don't even feed through to the billing company necessarily, right, from that standpoint. So one of the things we've done is we've developed a mobile ENM app solution. So it's basically like a charge ticket that you're being able to complete that in real time. That ENM charge ticket is actually fed through HL7. So you'll be able to see all the patients in the hospital system at that particular time. And you can select the patients as opposed to typing in all the information. Or if you want physicians to just be able to take a picture of the face sheet and the chart, they're able to do that as well. So it directly comes back to the billing company. But from that standpoint, you know, it's very, very effective. Uh, we've developed, a, we spent a lot of money, a lot of time with data scientists on identifying what the right schedule is to show the hospital systems, right? As to, you can kind of put these studies off. You don't have to do these every single day. You don't have to do this every single minute. You don't have to have an IR presence all the time. It's not going to delay patient care if you do X, Y, Z. No, you're right. It's every critical specialty. And so we're trying to improve the efficiency for them. So literally they can, you know, as they're waiting for the patient to get prepped, they're they're completing their ENMM application on the chart for the prior patient really on their phone or on their tablet and then go on to the next case. So so it's it's been well-received. You know, there was a billing company that we'd worked with in the past where they had IR procedures being done in the cath lab and the hospital wasn't sending over any of those procedures because it was in the cath lab. It wasn't under radiology. And for four years, nothing got billed out that they did in the cath lab. And it was like $600,000 or something like that a year worth of revenue that was being missed, right? And it's not on any log because you get the radiology logs. I mean, these are all things that we've lived and learned and understand. It's not on a PACS list that you're going to be able to identify it. Um, but we were able to pick up on those things, right? The billing company had no idea that these studies were even being done because they're only getting what they're getting. There's nowhere else they knew. There was no source of truth because there's no log per se. And this is the problem, right? This is exactly why you have to make sure the hospitals work with you guys on getting the right technology and processes in place and that the billing companies and other end users understand the workflow. You know, when we show reports, you know, I gave you the example of the cath lab IR. We were showing reports to Dr. Wen's group all the time saying, here's everything that you guys are doing. Here's everything. Well, they're not going to pick up when they're doing a thousand studies a day. They're not going to pick up on, oh, there's six IR studies in this particular area that are not being done. You know, they're not being captured. They don't know that. And it's not fair to ask the physicians to, to check and make sure they're doing that. We should need, that's what I'm talking about with this interoperability side of the equation. We have to know what's going on throughout the process. If you have a physician over there who's on the schedule, for example, and you have no RVUs for that physician that day, that should send up an alarm bell. Like, this guy's on the schedule, this lady's on the schedule. Why are they not producing anything? Something must be wrong. Let's check. Let's make sure. That's how intuitive it has to be. And it just has to be black and white like that. Yeah, there's another issue that, that I was horrified to find, and I've read some white papers on, but the demographics we get from our hospitals are approximately 30% inaccurate. That's a huge number. And what happens then is you can't bill. No matter what billing company you're using, you can't bill for them. They can't find them. So mm. they go to collection. So we can't bill, the pulmonologist can't bill, the ER doctor can't bill. So these patients go to collections. They're horribly upset, understandably. They slam you on Yelp and Google. So we're using technology. We have alliances now to try to get that 
correct demographics. And once we get the correct demographics, we give it back to the hospital so they can then give it to the right specialty. So the patient just gets billed appropriately. So again, that's another major, I think, pitfall within the systems that we have now. Well, you think about it, right? Insurance companies, this goes back to the insurance carriers trying to deny everything, right? They have so many plans. They have so many different payer numbers, right? It's not, no longer is it just a simple thing as, you know, oh, I have Aetna. Well, you have Aetna Medicare, you have Aetna Gold, you have Aetna, you know, First Choice, Aetna Better Health. Which one? And the front desk doesn't know how to identify these different things. And the front desk people, unfortunately, are the ones where there's the highest turnover. So you, you train them and then they leave and or they get burnt out. So speaking about payments, for your practices that partner with you, how are you guys getting paid? I mean, are you paid? Is this like a membership fee? Is it a flat fee? Are uh, you get a percentage of revenue? How does it work? We have three different models essentially in CI. So the first one is where you can have equity in CI, right? So that's one model. And we've basically taken that off the table now. We don't give equity to any other groups other than the founding groups because we spend all this money on developing the technology that we've developed. Um, so we want the groups to get the returns on that side of the equation. Of course, we can always make exceptions to bring someone else, but that's something that we're not really pursuing right now. So in that model, the groups contribute a percentage of their revenue into CI to fund the organization. And then 100% of the profits go back in for distributions to the group. So the groups are getting dividends from that standpoint. So that's one model, right? Um, alongside that, we have the licensing model where a group wants to come to us and they want to license our RCM solution. Well, we do that. We license the RCM. They're paying us on a percent of collections or a per procedure basis. Um, that money comes back into CI. It's a very high profit margin business, even though we're so much cheaper than all the other RCM companies out there. It's a very high profit margin business. So we give that money back to our, in our physicians and in CI. So now they have another revenue stream coming from the licensed products. The same thing's true with our universal work list. Same thing's true with our, with our speech to text. Um, if they're using, you know, if groups are using that, they get, they pay for that, that money gets back in. But the goal being, you know, our thing is if we can drive savings, we want to give it back to the physicians on either side, right? We're primarily physician owned. Um, we want to take care of them, but we also want to take care of the physicians on the other side. So if we figured out a way to reduce billing costs because we're getting clean information and so now it costs us a lot less, we're going to charge a lot less. I mean, I've uh, worked in groups before who've tried to do some of the things that you're talking about. And it just seems like the health systems work at these glacial paces, right? Especially when there's multiple groups involved. So I, I'm just having a disconnect here trying to understand um, how you're able to do this like quick turnaround where the initial, where, where other groups have tried and failed. Yeah. Ali, to your question, it's not easy. I mean, Drew painted very quick. It's, it's, it is a lot of work. You have to convince them. You have to show them the value. They show them it works. You have to show them how secure we are. And by doing that and over and over and over, you do develop the trust and then they're willing. Um, I do recall what I was going to say earlier. And that is, remember I mentioned I out, outsourced our development to a, a private company, you know, huge debacle. Having our own people, literally, I will tell you, Dhruv and I and, and my CTO and CIO, we literally text each other all night and all, you know, two, three in the morning constantly. How about improving this part? Let's try this software. Let's improve this. And the next morning, oh, here's a new release. Let's try this. Or it, whereas the refresh cycle time of any vendor is what, you know, six months, a year, there'll be a new version. And, but you have to get approval sure. for these requests. 
here we're the end users. We know what we want. We provide the input and the developers come back extremely quickly. Try this. Maybe it's not, it's probably not perfect, but you just keep tweaking, keep tweaking. Now the disadvantage of having your own developers and doing this on our own is it's not ever a finished product because it keeps evolving. But I think that's a, that's an advantage, not a disadvantage, but you, we do have some doctors who don't want to touch anything unless it's completely hundred percent functional. Well, nothing really is ever that, but, but our goal, yeah, is to keep improving these products. Where do you see the radiology market going over the next 10 years uh, in terms of big groups, private equity, working together, m multiple groups working together with systems like yours, collaborative imaging or similar entities? What's best case scenario and what's worst case scenario? Yeah, I think, you know, I have a pretty gloomy picture of private equity in radiology. I think, sure. you know, they've seen, they've seen, you know, what's happened and it's starting to fall apart. I personally think you're going to have more radiologists who are not going to be part of large groups. I think you're going to have a lot more federated radiologists um, reading from home, reading from different areas. I had someone pitch an idea to me where radiologists could be on sailboats and reading, you know, off the shore. Um, I think all of that's going to become a reality. I don't think the partnership model as we know it today is going to stand. Um, mm -hmm. You know, most groups have partnership models where everybody shares in the kitty. And it doesn't matter whether you have high producers or low producers, everybody gets paid the same at the end of the day. I think those models are going to be under a tremendous scrutiny now. I think um, there's going to be a lot more uh, liberation of data where people are going to be able to see RVUs, you know, and productivity, and they're going to have penal penalizations if certain criteria are not met. Sure. And they're going to have bonuses from there. And I think that's well, just going to encourage people to essentially be like, what is the point of being in a large partnership? as opposed to being a solo radiologist working for that. And I think those alliances are going to be a lot more uh, from that standpoint, which is great in one aspect because hospitals are going to want to partner with groups like Collaborative Imaging because they're going to want their data to be somewhere where it's secure. Um, I do see a marketplace type concept coming about uh, whereby radiologists, you know, groups will partner with hospitals. Um, mm -hmm. Hospitals will send them data. And it will essentially be, and forgive, you know, I don't want to um, offend any radiologists, but it'll be like the Uber of radiology, whereby hospitals are going to send data and radiologists are going to be notified and say, hey, you want to read? Jump in and read. And you get paid right off the bat. Um, and it goes directly into just like a Uber, just like a Uber um, driver concept, you know? And of course, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to suggest radiologists or drivers. I'm just simply saying that platform. That's just funny that you say that because um, my sister, who's not in medicine, she, um, uh, she called, she's like, oh, so basically you're a gig worker um, yeah. about my job. Cause I'm like, yeah. a, I'm like a 1099, you know? And yeah. um, I'm like, well, that, I guess, yeah. If you want to put it that way, sure. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's what's going to happen. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. So, you know, we have a voice recognition that's cloud-based, right? So now what ends up happening mm -hmm. is because it's all cloud-based, you can just log in and you can start reading. The work's going to be pushed to you based on where your credential, where your license, and you just upload all your documents. There'll be a verification process. And then all of a sudden studies will start showing up in your work list. You name your hours, say, I want to work three to five or what have you. And then there's peak time, right? So when you don't have radiologists logged in or you don't have radiologists leading, you pay them peak time rates. That's what I see happening in the future um, with radiology. But then again, that's my personal opinion. But Dr. Wen would love to get more level-headed opinion from you. No, I, unfortunately, I do think things are evolving very quickly and, and against the traditional model. So yeah, we're, we as a group are trying to get ready for that as well. To Drew's point, I, I have actually read exams on an airplane just to prove it can be done using CI technology <laughs> and it does work. 
I've, <laughs> I've not sat on the beach. <laughs> Please note all of those exams that he's read have been with privacy windows and right. everything else. So <laughs> you can look at his images right here, what he's saying, but yes. I mean, that's a, that's a crazy technology, right? Now you're sitting in a plane and you can read, you know, studies, right? Um, that's why, why do you, why cannot someone not be on a sailboat? Why can't you set up these luxurious sailboats that you go sailing, you know, for 30 days and just read off the ocean? You know why we can't do that is because at the end of the day, you still, like you alluded to earlier, you still need boots on the ground in the hospital. Yeah, okay? absolutely. And, and the whole the whole thing that you have talked about, which is that the radiology groups have developed trust and relationships with referring providers, that just disappears once you've commoditized radiology in the way of a gig worker. It is. And exact, unfortunately, that's what's happening, right? The commoditization of it is happening. It's just now you have no idea when doctors are having Telerad systems set up at their homes, whether their kids are accessing or what, you know, there's no security around it per se. So I think that's just where, unfortunately, that's where it's going to go. Thank you for taking the time to explain your model. Um, it's really interesting. It's good to know that there are alternatives out there. Absolutely. I appreciate your interest. Thanks, everybody. And thanks to our listeners. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.